0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth and master my favorite area, pricing and packaging. That's why this season on Build, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. Each week, I sit down with operators and experts to hear their pricing insights and experiences firsthand and answer some of our listeners' most burning pricing questions. Now on with the show. On this episode of Build, I chatted with Mike Volpe about pricing for competitive advantage. Mike is the CEO of Lola and was previously the CMO of Cyber Reason and HubSpot here in Boston. We talked about pricing in the early days of HubSpot, why pricing should always have multiple dimensions, and what it means to have pricing power. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us for the Build podcast. Could you give listeners a quick overview about yourself and your background?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing marketing at software companies, which are now called SaaS companies, since around like 1999, so long time. Pre, uh, around the time that Salesforce got started, yeah, I think they launched like around that year, and even before... Google, like Google was in beta back then. I you know, we don't need to go back into how old I am, but <laughs> probably the company I spent the most amount of time at so far was HubSpot. I was part of the founding team and was there for eight and a half years. I also was the CMO at Cyber Reason, which is an enterprise cybersecurity startup where I ran not only marketing, but I also managed the BDR team and the ISR, like the inside sales program. So it's some sales experience there. And I'm now the CEO of Lola.com, which is SaaS for corporate travel. We're you know a smaller or uh, earlier stage startup about sixty employees
0: and right around the corner from us here at OpenView.
1: That's right. Yeah, we actually overlook our windows. Look at your fantastic office. You guys have this great roof deck and just like a really nice setup here.
0: So you can see when we're having all of our parties.
1: That's right. Wow. I can look longingly when I'm at my desk doing all this work because we're an early stage startup, at you guys having cocktails in the summer.
0: <laughs> and so, when in your career did you catch the pricing bug and start to realize the importance that packaging and pricing plays in a SaaS startup?
1: Pretty early on, and really, I think the biggest experience I had with pricing was all the time that I spent at HubSpot. Pricing was, I mean, a gigantic piece of our growth over the years. I think early on, it's no secret that we had some churn-related issues in the first few years of that business. And part of it was product and product market fit and aligning sales marketing service and things like that. But at a certain point, we got down to sort of like a, what I call like a structural churn. It's sort of like, you know, there's the natural rate of unemployment, even when sort of everyone hasn't a job. And if you're selling to the SMB, it can be two to two and a half percent a month. And we got down close to that amount. And then all of the gains that we got above that in terms of churn and actually getting even to negative churn eventually, were basically from pricing strategy. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that sort of later on. So I'd say, you know, starting probably in 07 when I joined HubSpot. So for the past, you know, 10, 12 years, I've really sort of become not at all an expert on pricing, but someone who is definitely a student of it is maybe more appropriate.
0: So being one of those early employees at HubSpot and seeing that change in pricing from the early days to you know, a much more mature business, what do you say to other founders of early stage SaaS companies? What would you see as common pricing mistakes that they might be making, you know, ways that they could improve their business?
1: I think the biggest mistake or sort of missed opportunity maybe that I see people doing is basically having what I call flat or one-dimensional pricing. So maybe you have two or three different price points. But you sort of have like a small, medium, large product that's probably differentiated by what features you get access to. And so you have people at maybe three different price points, let's say. But you're missing a whole other dimension. So I think the best companies in the world in software pricing have two or more dimensions to their pricing. So one might be paying, you know, A, B, C price for three sets of features – but then another one would be sort of a usage-driven pricing, right? And I think that Salesforce is probably the oldest example that really nailed this, partly because of the market they're in It sort of very naturally goes along with them. But they have multiple prices that you pay per user for their core you know, sales cloud CRM product. And then based on the number of users you have, you also pay more. So I remember when we first first bought Salesforce at HubSpot for our own use, You know, we threw in our credit card and it was something like eight or 10 users for a whole year for like 500 bucks. And then over time, not only do we have to upgrade editions of Salesforce because we needed more functionality, we need access to APIs and more advanced reporting and all these things, but the company also grew. And, you know, something like seven, eight years later, we were paying them not $500, but $500,000 a year. And so you think about that uplift in pricing, and obviously that's an extreme example because HubSpot had a lot of growth, but the idea that you're charging people not only more based on their usage, but also based on that product functionality, there's a real multiplier effect that starts to happen with the pricing. So I think that having those multiple dimensions, it can be usage, it can be features. You can have multiple levels of usage, maybe, you know, the amount of usage that's metered in some way, and also the number of users. You can have multiple layers there. You can have other add-on products, but I think the sort of more dimensions you have to your pricing, the more you can kind of extract the value from the customers. And that's, I think, the biggest mistake I see smaller companies making is that they have kind of just like, oh, we have three prices, you know, we're all set on pricing. And maybe for the early stage you are, but as you grow and get more advanced as a company, I think that multiple dimensions is really the thing that people need to think about.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you know, you should be growing as your customers grow in usage and size and sophistication.
1: The big insight we had at HubSpot was that we were trying to minimize churn by looking at the bottom 30% of our customer base that were the least active users, weren't getting value out of the product, and just banging our heads against the wall. How do we make them happier? How do we get them not to cancel? But we weren't looking at the top 20 or 30% of our customer base that were the happiest that wanted to give us more money and we weren't giving them an opportunity to give us more money and really the you know kind of 2 to 3 years before IPO through IPO and even like 2 years after IPO all of the uplift we got on our churn rate and going into negative churn and a lot of the uplift we got on sort of like, you know, average contract value, like things like that, were driven by pricing and really giving the most active customers at the top of that segment, the happiest customers, the ones getting the most benefit out of the software, giving them opportunities and ways to pay us more money. So I think that you're totally right. If people focus on churn a lot of like who are the least happy customers, but the other way to overcome that is give the happiest ones more opportunity to pay you more money.
0: Yeah, well it's interesting when companies that I work with think about trying to find multiple dimensions into pricing. I think, you know, people default to packages, having some sort of good, better, best packaging. And then they often go to users because that's sort of the Salesforce model, the OG pricing model in SaaS. HubSpot took a different approach, charging based on usage. I think that was one of the earlier usage based models in SaaS. How did you figure out that was the right model to grow with your customers?
1: The struggle we had was the user-based model doesn't work great in marketing. So the nice thing about Salesforce is both salespeople and service people tend to scale with the company. So if you're going to triple your revenue, you might not triple those teams, but maybe they grow by two or two and a half X. The issue with marketing teams is the number of users tends to stay relatively small, even as the company gets really big. So you might have a $100 million company is not going to have 10 times the marketing heads that a $10 million company would have, you know, maybe they have two or three times the heads. So we were seeing that the number of users just didn't scale that well on the marketing side of things with the growth of the company and the benefit that they were getting out of it. One, a model that was in place at the time was sort of like email centric models, like by the number of sends, the exact target was using that model at the time we Didn't love that because HubSpot wasn't just an email system. And really, our view in the world wasn't that you should be sending tons and tons more email. You might want to send less and have it be higher quality and engage with the customers in other ways. We sort of struggled for a long time and we sort of came up with this idea of basically usage base, sort of like the size of your marketing database as that grew, as you were more successful growing that database. We should share in that success. And we're both managing more data for you, giving you more capabilities because the database is bigger and you're being successful because you're generating more context using HubSpot. So that was the one we came up with. It's not perfect. like There's a couple holes in it, but I think it was the best one possible given what the company did at the time.
0: Well, and I think to unpack that a little bit, what I really like is that You took an exhaustive approach to looking at different options that were available, evaluating pros and cons, and figuring out what was right for your customers and your business.
1: We were talking about this earlier off-air. Yeah, we used to spend hours and hours and hours debating pricing as a management team. You know, some very, very heartfelt debates. We thought we would come up with answers. We thought we would agree to something. And then, you know, we'd sort of rethink it and go back. Debating pricing was the most contentious item that we debated as a management team over years at HubSpot. There are countless hours that went into that debate around pricing and packaging. And I'm not sure we got it completely right, but I think over time we sort of iterated to something that was quite good.
0: How do you actually ultimately come to a decision knowing that you want to have room for debate and disagreement in a company, but ultimately you need to have conviction in something and move forward and get aligned around it to make it successful? How do you actually kind of drive to that consensus I
1: think one of the challenges we had was that all of us were sort of the first time in those particular roles. Like there was no one who had done that job, you know, head of XYZ function before. And so I think to a certain degree, we just didn't know. You know, we weren't the early, early wave of SaaS, but we were somewhat early. I mean, the company was founded in 06 in and there wasn't a lot of state of the art around SaaS back then the way there is today. So in some ways we were kind of trailblazing, especially as an SMB SaaS company. I think there just wasn't a lot Of information out there. And we had a hard time doing it, to be honest. If you contrast that with what we've been doing at Lola, you know, when I started, we were B2B. And our pricing was basically completely transactional driven. So we make money when people book and Hotel with us. There's transactional revenue that we capture. The customer doesn't even pay it. It's sort of like an industry commission. And when we started, that was the only revenue we were capturing. About a month or six weeks into the job, when I joined a CEO, I put in subscription-based pricing on top of that. And the reason I did was that customers were confused that they didn't have to pay. It was actually slowing down sales cycles, not charging them, which is sort of counterintuitive.
0: They might think they're not going to have a great experience.
1: Yeah, and we were talking earlier about the wine example and sort of the brand thing, you know?
0: Yeah, well, so I think it's really interesting the ways that pricing interacts with sort of marketing and branding. And there's been an experiment with wine around, well, there have been multiple experiments with wine. I think economics researchers have a fascination for wine. But there's something where, you know, when you actually give people the taste of different bottles of wine and you don't tell them how expensive it is, ask them to guess. They can't guess. But if you tell someone, oh, this bottle of wine is $100 and this one is $10, they actually think that the $100 bottle of wine tasted better because they sort of associate it with more of a premium kind of product offering. and so there's just some interesting experiments
1: early on we ran into that hubspot where we were charging 250 a month for the entire platform and bigger companies would look at that and they say well this must not be for me or it must not be very good because the price is so low and at the same time the very small companies were saying oh like the price is really high so we had to figure out ways to kind of have the right price for both of them and same thing at lola early on you know again we weren't charging a subscription price it was just transactional revenue And companies would sign up, but they'd ask questions like, well, how are you making money? And what would happen would be they would assume that the software wasn't very good, and they would test it with like two or three people. And their rollouts were very slow, and they really just weren't dedicated to sort of going forward and making the rollout work. As soon as we started to charge, and not even that much, our first price was just 100 bucks a month, you know, prepaid annually. So someone would cut us a check for $1,200. And the grand scheme of things, it's not that much, especially if you're spending half a million bucks on travel. What happened was people instantly assumed the software was higher quality, which it is, and their rollouts would go much faster. They would do things like get all of their employees on board and signed up and logged in within a day. Whereas, you know, maybe they were testing it when it was free. And they also give you much better feedback If there are bugs or problems that they run into. So, as soon as they were paying us, you know, $1,200, we would get all these complaints. And the developers are like, oh, wow, like people are finding all these bugs. And I said, yeah, the bugs were there before. No one was finding them because no (laughs) one was using it, right? Pricing doesn't create bugs, sales doesn't create bugs, usage finds bugs, it doesn't create them. All that is actually super advantageous to you as a company. It's also advantageous to the customers because this whole free model just wasn't working for us at that time in the way that we were doing it. I think there's a freemium opportunity over time. But in any event, you're absolutely right. Like I think people sell themselves short and have a price that's too low, and that impacts the sort of brand and the positioning, what people's perception is of your product.
0: Well, then going on the complete flip side, before Lola, you were at Cyber Reason. I believe you've mentioned that the price point of Cyber Reason was like 25 times <laughs> that of HubSpot. So, you know, talk about, you know, not running into those issues of price being indicative of quality. But what do you think allows a company to have that much pricing power in the market?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, oh, I think there's a difference between how high your price is and pricing power, right? I would argue in some ways... HubSpot might have more pricing power than Cyber Reason, even though its average price is way lower, because I think that HubSpot has really strong differentiation in the market, and there's a set of companies that will pretty much only look at HubSpot's product because it's sort of the exact appropriate product for these mid-sized companies. Cyber Reason, on the other hand, the deals are very large, but the issue with selling into the enterprise, especially in a market like cybersecurity, is that even though you have – very differentiated technology and capabilities that are unique and provide a lot of value to customers. It's really difficult to figure that out in security, which is a market of, I'm using this product and I didn't get hacked, therefore it's good. And you know that could mean that, oh, I've been standing on my left leg for the past two days and I didn't get hacked. So that must be the thing that's keeping me from getting hacked. It's really hard to prove that XYZ piece of technology was the thing that prevented you from getting breached. It's interesting. And I'd say that the other dynamic with cyber is in that you're selling to very large companies. And when you're selling a 2 or $3 million deal, The buyer has a fair amount of leverage because they know they're one of a smaller number of companies in your pipeline versus at HubSpot. You know, somebody's going to give you $10,000 for a company doing $700 million in revenue. There's zero customers that have any leverage over HubSpot. Whereas, you know, some of Cyber Reason's largest customers you know, have more leverage. And that's true just selling into the enterprise. So it's interesting that the companies that you sell to and the value that you provide and sort of how big their budgets are, like all those things kind of go together to mix into like pricing power versus the average deal size. And those things are kind of all independent. And there's these other, lots of examples, unique situations where they kind of produce different results.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to think about. Wolin, well, you've worked at companies in highly competitive markets. Obviously, there's so many security products in the market with HubSpot being uniquely positioned for that you know, SME to mid-market company looking for marketing automation, but sits in a space in the marketing tech space with thousands of marketing software companies. And then Lola in the travel space, there's lots of different companies with travel offerings. How should competitors influence your packaging and pricing strategy?
1: I think you need to be really careful about not following the competition, right? So your competition can set some level of like a benchmark of what your customers expect to pay to a certain degree, but you need to be really careful about not sort of completely following their model and especially following it if it's kind of like a race to the bottom. There's only one situation where you want to always have the lowest price and that's if... Your strategy is cost differentiation, and your entire business is about being the lowest cost provider and therefore you can sell at lower prices than everyone else can. And, you know, retail examples of that would be like Walmart or Costco, where the entire business is about providing goods at a lower cost. You could argue Amazon as well, right? And the whole business is set up to offer things at a lower cost. But unless that's really your strategy, I'd be really, really wary about following the competition too much. I think you really want to emphasize your differentiation. And if you lose a deal, people might say it's based on price, but it's often in actuality based on the differences in product functionality, I wouldn't use price as a way to win deals.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And when you ask the sales team, why did we lose? Oh, our price was too high when really it's they didn't see the value versus alternatives, which is a different conversation.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like you got to sell based on value. And, you know, it's easy for both the sales team to say it was price and for, frankly, the buyers, even when you're doing research with them, to say, well, you know, this other competitor was cheaper or something like that. But in actuality, it really comes down to a value conversation. You're right.
0: I see a lot of companies that copy their competitors' pricing strategy. Some copy it, but charge a little bit less. And I know you mentioned that really only makes sense if you have a cost advantage, but do you see other instances when packaging or pricing strategy should be a source of competitive advantage or competitive differentiation?
1: I don't think it should be in the short term. I think that in the short term you almost want to leave a little extra money on the table. You know, economists would call this like consumer surplus and the ability to let your customers sort of capture a lot of the value that's being created from the product and not give all that back to you in terms of the the subscription price. And so I'd be real careful about doing that in the short term. In the long term, I don't know that your pricing and packaging should be the competitive advantage. But I do think that your unit economics as a whole could be competitive advantage. And pricing and packaging can be one thing that drives great unit economics. And so if you have better unit economics, higher LTV to customer acquisition cost ratio compared to everyone else in the market, then what that means is that On each customer you sign up, you're more profitable, you have more cash that you can recycle back into your business, you're going to grow with less of a need for outside capital. All those things give you the ability in the long term to be successful against your competition. I think in the long term it can be something, but I wouldn't in the first couple years of a business try to eke out and squeeze every single dollar out of the customer because you want them to be really happy. You want that positive word of mouth. You want people to feel like they're getting a ton of value.
0: And so we talked about this before of you know when you are in a competitive market, you might start seeing competitors start undercut you on price or race to the bottom on price. If you're trying to push back against that, to not have that happen in your market, what are some ways that you know a SaaS company can respond to that behavior?
1: It really boils down to product differentiation. And that can be not only the features that you have within your system, but it also can be things that are brand-based, like trust and the number of customers, the number of reviews that you have, things like that, where people are saying, well, I'm willing to spend more for this product because I'm more confident it's going to work for me. Because a lot of these products are sort of hard to really, really effectively trial and test. And I think another component of it can be service and sort of the intangibles outside of the product. So don't feel like, oh, geez, you know, I'm not going to be able to execute on new software features to create that differentiation. It can be based on providing a higher level of service. Maybe it's, you know, live support versus, you know, email support or things like that. It can be based on just, you know, your brand and you have more customers and you have more reviews, better ratings, you know, then that bigger trust factor. It also can be based on things like having a larger community. Like right now, if you were to start a brand new sort of, you know, MarTech company or some marketing platform, you know, one of the things people would say is well well, you know, I could buy yours or I could buy HubSpot and there's, 300,000 people or 3 million people, whatever the number is of people that know how to use HubSpot in the world. And there's zero people or 10 people that know how to use yours. So it's going to be easier for me to hire people that know how to use HubSpot. That's a big reason why people buy Salesforce today, for instance, right? It's just sort of the community. So there's lots of other ways to differentiate versus just price. And so I would really focus on a bunch of those other things and see which of those you'd be capable of delivering on. Not, and it's not just software features.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like you need to figure out What's your source of competitive advantage? And it doesn't have to be you have X product feature and the competitor doesn't. It can be a lot broader looking at the customer's experience and how they're going to be more successful. And have, actually have conviction that you know, there's a reason why you can charge a premium in the market.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. And don't be afraid to lose some deals. Like there's going to be people that don't value the things that your differentiation is based on. Your job is to find the ones that do value it, not the ones that don't.
0: And then final question for you, what's a SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging perspective?
1: I'll give you two examples. So one is, we talked about this earlier, but Salesforce, they really nailed sort of that multiple access pricing, starting with, I think they had four additions from like basic to professional to enterprise to unlimited, and then the per user pricing as well. And since then they've added all these other products, you know, service cloud, marketing cloud, all these other things. So they've really sort of blown it up where there's almost like infinite dimensions to their pricing now. One other that I really admire for different reasons is Dropbox. They really nailed the freemium model. And freemium is one of those things where I think three years ago, it was incredibly hot. Everyone's trying to do freemium. And now the pendulum has sort of swung back the other way. And everyone's like, don't do freemium. I think neither of those answers were correct. Freemium can be very powerful if you figure out the right way to use it within your market. And I think that they did a great job of really nailing that and giving people the ability to have a product that was free to use forever, but having a pretty good upgrade path off of it. You know, there's other examples of freemium not working in the long term. I think You know, Evernote might be the poster child for that of just like they gave away so much. It was a good product, but they gave away so much that they just couldn't monetize it to make it really work effectively. But Dropbox has done a phenomenal job and I think they deserve a lot of kudos for that.
0: Yeah, those are great examples. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining the OV Build Podcast. Thanks a ton for having me. It was fun. Thanks for tuning into the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.